The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. This episode was recorded live in front of an audience, in a hangar, so the audio quality may not be up to the usual standard. We begin with Captain Jeff Cooper, who was addressing both his passengers for the DC-3 flight that morning, and those gathered for the Wings Over New Zealand Christmas party. Thanks very much for that. Uh, On behalf of Flight DC-3, a very warm welcome to our uh, hangar here at Ardmore. This is a slightly different uh, situation in the setup here this morning, and that's because, uh, along with the scenic flight, we have the uh, Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum uh, coming in to have a meeting here as well. So uh, you might say that the hangar's full of aviation enthusiasts this morning, and uh, perhaps one or two geeks as well. Uh, I'm Jeff Cooper. I'm one of the pilots on the aeroplane this morning for the scenic. I'll be uh, joined by Tim Dennis here up front. And our two flight attendants this morning, Cheryl's here, and where's Lynn hiding? Lynn's hiding over the other side. And uh, they'll be in the cabin. Lynn will be on the jump seat this morning because the aeroplane's full. So uh, we'll endeavour to get uh, some movement going on in the cabin so you can get a quick look out the front when uh, we're flying. To uh, just give you a quick heads up, you'll be well aware that currently 
uh, there's very strict health and safety regulations and safety management systems in uh, vogue and we've been through the ringer I can tell you in the last week with civil aviation so we're going to ask you please for your compliance and cooperation and that uh, when you leave the hangar doors to go out the aeroplane we're going to keep you uh, close together and we don't want anybody wandering off please on your own because they're uh, watching very closely from the uh, Unicom or the control tower out there and uh, any discretion and they take photos believe it or not and potters to the airport authority. So it, I, it sounds uh, harsh but unfortunately we just have to play by the rules so if you'll bear with us we'll escort you and we'll have plenty of crew as you can see in uh, high vis vests. While we're looking around, let's not miss uh, the rest of the volunteers here. And rest assured, we're all absolutely unpaid in this uh, activity here with Fly DC-3. The uh, revenue from the aeroplane goes entirely back into keeping it in the air. And uh, we don't have any staff whatsoever. There are no paid staff at Fly DC-3. So our operation is done by uh, a small group of volunteers. And the office, for example, of Fly DC3, DC3 is in one of our volunteers' own office. And uh, she's not there eight, eight days a week, as said the uh, Beatles. So seven days a week, 24 hours a day, you're not going to get somebody uh, answering the phone. So we do our best, and that's uh, the, uh, just the position we have to face. We cannot afford to pay anybody to man the phones. So volunteers are doing that, and I can tell you it's an arduous job, and we get some phone calls at unbelievably ridiculous hours of the day and night where you wouldn't ring your dentist or your lawyer, so why would you ring Fly DC3? <laughs> so I think you'll understand that uh, we have to put up with a bit of pressure at times, so uh, that's part and part of having a voluntary organisation. Uh, when we go flying this morning, we've got a very light northeasterly here, so we're going to take off out towards the Cleveland Valley, and that'll lead us uh, out across. Uh, we're going to have a quick look at Waiheke this morning, see what's going on at the vineyards, and then we'll come up over Rangitoto and we'll go up and down the harbour, both uh, north, east, and west, so that both sides of the airplane get to see the same view, and then we'll uh, make our way down sort of overhead Eden Park, Dominion Road area. And hopefully Auckland Airport will let us fly right over the head of the big airport and then we'll be back in here to land. About 25 minutes in the air, not above 1,500 feet at any time and predominantly mainly at 1,000 feet. There'll be uh, some signature movements of the uh, syndicate whilst we're airborne, so don't be alarmed. We're not, we won't be doing anything silly, but, but there'll be one or two uh, surprises for you. The uh, aeroplane has never been with uh, the Air Force. That's only a symbolic uh, livery that was uh, granted to us in 2007. The aeroplane was bare metal stripped and repainted in the Air Force colours. And you'll notice there's a uh, NAC decal on it as well. Never been with NAC either. It was its uh, 30th birthday here last uh, October that it's been in the syndicate. And it came out of a uh, museum, aviation museum in uh, Mackay in Australia. So we've had it 30 years. It's done about uh, just a little over 43,000 hours, which is uh, mid-life for a DC-3. The high time ones are over 90, and the low time ones, believe it or not, there's one or two around the world that have done less than uh, 14,000 hours. One for sale in the States at the moment. I can tell you, if you can find probably about 2 million US dollars, it is spectacular. Only ever been a corporate aeroplane, polished metal, 
and it's spitted out uh, fit for the king. Beautiful. The only requirement we have for you once you get aboard, please, is uh, the Airsteer door was uh, a refit to the aeroplane uh, some years after it was originally built. And we would ask you, don't be too keen to uh, leap aboard because the Airsteer door is only designed for one person at a time. So if you can help us out by waiting until the, the body ahead has come through the door, and if you can uh, try and work your way up the, the slope of the aeroplane without using the backs of the seats as a lever, that would help us as well. You'll notice the, uh, except for the front row of seats, the armrests are fixed. The rest of the rows, the armrests are actually folded up out of the way so you can slide across into the window seat. We need a bit of uh, friendliness in the cabin too, folks, because one of the best views, believe it or not, is not beside the window you're looking out of, is out across the aeroplane out on the other side. Because particularly when we're banking over, you'll get a good view looking across the aisle. So if you can sort of be friendly alongside to the person alongside you and think about the other ones on the other side as well, that if you lean forward and block the window, it means you're the only one seeing the view. But it's only a, a nice to do things, you know. Uh, you'll play along and, and see how it goes. The seats in the aeroplane are from a uh, 767. So they're marginally higher than you would have got, certainly sitting in the old steel panniers that were originally in the aeroplane. And uh, you're sitting on uh, brand new seat covers and uh, seat cushions as well. So you, again, for those of you that are vertically challenged, you've got an advantage because you have to look straight out the window. For the taller people, we do concede that you do have to bend a bit to get uh, you know, a decent view out the window. Can't do much about it, folks, I'm sorry, unless we uh, sort of uh, put you in the compost bin and uh, knock you down a peg or two so that you're uh, looking straight out the window. Anybody got uh, any uh, other questions? How many first-time flyers in a DC-3? Or a C-47, as it is officially? Good heavens, where have you been? This aeroplane's been here, like I say, 30 years, and for most... Sundays of every year, weather permitting, this aeroplane has been over Auckland City. And I don't doubt that many of you will have looked up and said, I wonder where that came from. Is that a fair, fair comment? So we're glad to have you with us. You'll enjoy it. You know, it's a bucket list item. And uh, when you go away today, I'm hoping you'll say, gee, I wish I'd done that earlier. I just uh, need to mention a few others of the folks here too. Uh, Pete and uh, Yongsi. Uh, here is another one of our pilots as well. So Pete and Yongsi will be doing uh, lunch for the forum a little bit later on. And uh, alongside Tim here is Cherry Chen. Uh, she's Yongsi's partner. Linda's hiding over the back here. She's, Linda's one of our flight attendants and the uh, administration lady. Jessie's our... Uh, how would you... Everything. Every, <laughs> logistics manager is the easiest way. She, you know, she does the uh, office, she does the flying, she does the... Uh, all the charter work, booking hotels, and all those sorts of things. So, uh, you know, she's she's the real uh, go-to person for all the uh, operation of the airline. Cheryl, we've, you've met. Is there anybody else I've missed? No? No, we've got Lynn. That's it. So, uh, for those of you going flying, you've got the uh, tags on that says uh, you're eligible to come aboard. We'll all gather at the uh, hangar doors here. I just pushed those closed just to see if it made any difference to the light on the uh, screen. So we'll make the wander and okay. that'll take a few minutes anyway folks for you to get your boarding passes. Just for the uh, forum guys that are here, 
the uh, you will have had a uh, good heads up from uh, Dave Homewood about the uh, activities around the hangar here. The, the aeroplanes here all privately owned, and uh, the, the guys that uh, obviously got these undercover here are pretty keen that you can look, but please don't touch. I mean, you're all aviation enthusiasts, so you know the rules anyway. This uh, little uh, Titan Mustang here is uh, about three quarters of its way through a test flight program and they found the other day that the uh, propeller, which is a carbon fibre, four-bladed unit, actually has developed some cracks, believe it or not, stress cracks, and a bit of corrosion. That's why it is uh, sans propeller at the moment and hopefully when they uh, get that replaced they'll get the last of the test flight program and that will make its way off to Australia then with the owner. The aeroplane here behind you, believe it or not, came from Australia, but one of the co-owner of the hangar here had his own aeroplane in the uh, park in here, and he sold that, and it went to the airfield, believe it or not, where his father had this aeroplane hangar, and his father's aeroplane came across here, it was with us. So they swapped places, and that's, that's a very, very nice aeroplane, that's, believe it or not, that's nearly 10 years old, and it looks like the day it came off the assembly line. So, uh, without further ado, I think what we'll do, we'll get your boarding passes and allocate it or hand it out, and then we'll get underway. Thanks, folks. We now turn to another of the guest speakers, John Denton. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great privilege to have uh, John Denton here, uh, one of the original of the famous warbird pilots in this country. Um, well known in the olden days for flying the Venom. So uh, please uh, give a round of applause for John Denton. Thank you very much, Kate. Well, I think we'll, um, the talk I was asked to give was uh, flying the Venom, and we'll, we'll probably put a little history in before that to start off. Okay, so if we go back to the 1960s, um, I learned to, um, to fly in the 60s. I, I, I came out of my flying course at Wigram, which was uh, uh, a marvellous place to do your wings course. And I went to a Harkia. I spent about seven years at a Harkia over, over time. And so um, <clears throat> and I ended up with about 3,000 hours on Harvard. So that's why I ended up flying them. I learned to like love tile draggers and, uh, <coughs> and uh, very comfortable in the. In the so uh, life in Ohaki in, in those days was pretty good. Uh, later on I went up to vampires and then skyhawks um, and a couple of years away instructing, got married and all those sort of things. But, but life in Ohaki was, was uh, uh, seemed like golden days in this, in this age. Uh, was, uh, we had uh, aeroplanes that were um, considerably older. They weren't the latest frontline aeroplanes but they were great to fly. And uh, the idea really was to keep the, the strike end of things going, their skills available so that should something happen then we would have a cadre of uh, pilots that we could uh, put on the later aeroplanes and, and get them cracking. Um, <clears throat> so life was uh, not very good. I ended up on um, uh, Vampires with a great team of guys there. We had uh, guys like uh, Ross Ewing and Roger Henstock, uh, Rick Hestead, uh, and a bunch of uh, Larry Olson, uh, Colin Rudd, Stanley Hunt was here just as I was leaving. 
a head and ear bedic team, which uh, was pretty good, and they're a real keen bunch of young fellows. I, I had been uh, a little while in the transport wing. <coughs> I did a bit of co-pilot time on DC-6s and Hastings, amongst other things, of course, on Bristol freighters. And um, I was uh, grateful to that team that on the, on the vampires because they were such a keen as busted young bunch of guys doing great things, loved what they did, and it was a great airplane to fly. So I joined up uh, with uh, uh, on the 14 squadron and 75 squadron, and they alternated as the Canberras went to Singapore. And you might recall the Canberras uh, were in. Um, they were in Singapore when I went on to, on to vampires. But before them up there were, were, uh, were Venoms. And the Venoms were leased from the RAF. There were Mark I Venoms, and uh, they had about two years on them. They, they started up there about the end of 58, 55, beg your pardon, and ended in about, 50, about 58. So um, when I was at Wigram, some of my instructors were ex-Venom pilots. There's a good and bad to that. They love their handling and aeroplanes and that sort of thing, but um, they were teaching us instrument flying and they, they, they didn't know much about it, to be honest. They had the basics, but they had, in the Venoms, there were no navigation aids and there were no navigation aids in the Venom later, so they're teaching us ADF approaches and so on, but they, they were learning at the same time in the Devons. <coughs> so that's why the course was a little longer, the first course that we did on the with Harvard and Devons. Now the, uh, uh, so um, out of Harkia in those days and then turned up a young fellow named um, Trevor Bland. He was actually quite a bit older than me. I was really young. And uh, <laughs> I joined when I was 17. There was no one younger on the course of the next two courses after me. So what I knew could be written on a pinhead really. And after I finished all these courses, it wasn't much more. This guy Trevor Bland turned up there, and he came as a, as a bit of a legend and uh, built his legend while he was while he was there. Not that he uh, aimed to do so or anything like that, but he was well known before he arrived as a as a um, expatriate who had um, uh, flown number 16 in a formation of 16 hunters. I think with Trevor one squadron, but I'm not sure. Some of you guys probably know more about these things than, than I do. But <coughs> So Trevor uh, arrived with uh, a wife and, and uh, three daughters and uh, I got married about this time and we ended up uh, next to our neighbours. And uh, it was a great environment. Of course Ohaki was quite a long way from anywhere. Um, you made your own fun around here and so we did. And so we spent quite a while in each, other, each other's houses and enjoying uh, each other's company and uh, time moved on very nicely there. The, I went away to, um, to Vietnam for a while and flew OB-10s up there for about six, seven months. So if you want to ask any questions about that as well, um, <coughs> late, later on uh, or at any time, please do. And it was a, an interesting time. 
talk about that later. So, while I was away in Vietnam, the, uh, the Skyhawks arrived and uh, Trevor's involved as flight commander there and uh, Mighty Machine they were too. Uh, and after I came back, uh, the vampires were still around for a, a while. The uh, Strike Masters were on their way. And so the Skyhawks got underway. We had uh, two Americans come and stay with us uh, for a while to, to bed in. And uh, Fred Myers was the uh, first one. He was uh, US Navy, which is where the Skyhawks came from. They did their training over at uh, Pensacola, Jackson, Jackson, actually, in Florida. And threw the Skyhawks over to the uh, west coast where they embarked on a were embarked on a carrier and one of the uh, junior officers came with them on the carrier and uh, a story not all that well known is that they, uh, that little carrier had hit a big storm on the way over and the uh, captain of the ship was very close to uh, push them all off the side <laughs> to preserve the ship. However they all made it and uh, a great machine they were. So going back a little bit to the uh, fighter development, the, the vampires, you know, was designed about 1943, and as they do, the designs were continued to develop all the time. And in the de Havilland area, um, the Venom started off as a uh, originally as a to be a vampire eight but it became so, so different along the way that they changed the name of it to, to Venom. And the differences were considerable. Uh, as you know, it has a bigger engine. It has the um, 4,850-pound thrust Ghost engine in, which is the same engine as the, uh, as the original Comets. And just to put that in perspective, the that 48,000 pound is, is not too far off um, for, the, for the time for others. The F-86E only had 5,200 pound of thrust. So it's not that big a difference. The, the Venom had a, a skinnier wing. Its, its, its uh, thickness cord was 10% as opposed to 14% on the Vampire. It was an experimental, little bit skinny wing. They had quite a few handling problems in the early days uh, with them. So as a result of that, um, they found it worked better with the tip tanks on all the time. They put wing fences on it. And also they had a problem with the wings doing a bit of a clap hands from over the top with some of the early ones. So the, the, they kept flying them, but they restricted the uh, what they could be used for. There's a huge number of Venoms were built over time, you know, 1,400 built. Um, and they, they, they played in quite a few countries, I think it's about eight countries, uh, from South America to Iraq and, and uh, other places around the Middle East. <coughs> so the, the, the skinny wing on the on the Venom, as we know, had a bit of sweep on it, just a few degrees. Um, D 
Dr. Hamlin were a little bit, um, you could say, hesitant, but you can kind of understand why, because uh, of the DH-108 swallows that were built, they lost all three, didn't they? So, um, and of course, one of those had uh, Jeffrey de Havilland on board with it, uh, and that was the end of him. So, so de Havilland didn't stay out uh, at the front very much, they were uh, a bit reluctant, almost, it would seem, just reading between the lines of it, uh, because the, the venom was quite short-lived in its service life, because uh, the other airplanes were more um, more aggressive in their design philosophy. Uh, then we had uh, things like the um, uh, the Hunter, the Swift in development in Britain, the Sea Vixen was a bit, a bit later. It's actually quite a. Have you said that? Oh yeah, that's that's actually a, a much bigger airplane. That's a big airplane, I think. Um, we had one come into a Hakia one day and off carrier, off Eagle, and a, um, we had a, a Buccaneer and a Civixon come in and both substantial airplanes. And uh, we had a good party with the guys off those. They were keen to get ashore and we weren't there for very long. But, and we went over and attacked the ship with the vampires and skywalks. <laughs> yeah, well, it was over in um, Marlborough Sounds. Yeah, so um, the, um, the Venom really and the, the, the Swift will kind of uh, divide the, um, the area rule, the bottle effect thing, because it hadn't been invented at that time. This, this, the Hunter was a bit more naturally like, like the area rule shape. But the Swift, which had a beautiful fine entry as low as any, but quite blunt, and they had some um, big handling problems with it as well. The, and then the Hunter, of course, was very well uh, liked by everybody who flew it. F-86. Never flew it, but by all, all reports, it was a great airplane to fly. Great gun platform and uh, <coughs> good systems. And of course the Russians had the MiG-15. And so all of these uh, had the, um, the Venom revert to uh, other roles. So in the Suez War it was, uh, it was used for ground attack. They worked out of Akrotiri in Cyprus and some other place. Um, one of my bosses on the uh, 40-inch squadron or 75, I'm not sure which was which, uh, Doug Dallison, he flew Venoms and uh, I don't know how many raids he did, but he reckoned he planted the, planted the bomb between the legs of a, of a MiG-15 over, over there somewhere. So it was, uh, it was very good and still useful for what it did. Uh, there was a recent um, article on uh, Airplane magazine about the Venom that gave us uh, uh, service ceiling as uh, 39,000 feet, but the guys are regularly getting up to 50,000. and. Because of the design, they weren't uh, had problems with Mark number. The, the vampire would get up to Mark two and, and then be um, uncontrollable, which was uh, uh, so. All he did with that was uh, back the throttle off a bit, 
and that problem went immediately went away. It would pitch violently like that. Uh, and if you persevered, it would just throw you harder and harder against the strap. So you, you soon got the idea it's not a good idea. But the, um, the Venom uh, had a reputation if you got up to it, 0.86, it um, actually lost control of the thing and it continued to plummet until the air characteristics changed a bit and you recovered about 26,000, 25,000 feet. So this is known as a, as a Venom or a death dive. Um, and the guys who were on earlier, they all had to, uh, had to do it, of course, but <laughs> well, they said they did it. <laughs> um, so the Venoms, uh, after that, the least ones we had were in Singapore. Now, Venom was, um, was built to... Uh, Sure, initially they could carry thousand pounders each side, but they did do. But their um, uh, tactics that they had for the jungle warfare, while confrontasi with uh, Indonesia was going on, pretty pretty basic. Really, some of level bombing. They didn't do. Didn't have much in the way of target marking. <coughs> but they were there, and they did what they did. Um, so. Just getting back to Ahakia and um, as time went on there, uh, Treblan and some of the others started doing their exams for the commercial uh, exit from the Air Force. And so I started a bit after him and I, we all sort of faced this problem once your contract runs out, you know, what am I going to do now? And uh, so we looked at various uh, options and, uh, and I visited some friends up here, Gavin Trithui, some may know, and I said, oh, that looks like a pretty good lifestyle to me, so I've got to do these exams too. And so that all worked out very well. We used to sit around there and um, and do the practice exam papers and so on, pass them around, talk about them, give each other a bit of coaching. And uh, and at the time, of course, the um, we still thought about flying real aeroplanes, even though we were going to go commercial. So, the genesis was back there of, uh, of Warbirds and uh, I suppose it was about, I don't know, it seems like about four or five years in retrospect that um, before the harvest came available, it was about 78 I think, but the, I ended up with a share in the harvest uh, and I think it cost me $1,300 after we'd um, paid for putting the radio in it, it was pretty good, wasn't it? And I think there were 12 of us in the original syndicate in that one, and uh, we we paid uh, a levy every year for the insurance and various things. And the servicing, we took our one up to Dairy Fat for servicing. Because Stan Smith up there was uh, a shareholder in the aeroplane, and he did the servicing. I got to deliver it because I had the most hours of things. And, uh, and um, if you take it up there in the winter, it's, the, the track was pretty skinny in those days. And so staying on it was important. <laughs> um, yeah, so Woodwards uh, uh, got started and uh, cracking, and all sorts of airplanes were supposed to turn up. The Sabre was mooted um, amongst all the uh, 
various others, but the venom became a reality and it turned up and well created and beautiful the thing it was as well. It was, a, of course, a, a Swiss aeroplane and uh, the finish on it was immaculate. Uh, and if you look inside the panels, uh, wing panels for instance, you can see the, uh, the uh, anodized finish inside there was just uh, built to last. And the wartime aeroplanes were only built to last about 750 hours, something like that. And it'd be written off, but uh, Venom's kept the aeroplanes into the, the 8083. Uh, so the plan was that um, this would be put together and Trev would fly it and he had the Mustang to fly, so he asked me to, to uh, fly the Venom. One of my big regret, I, we used to go down to Monaco, uh, course, for the, for the shows at that time, and um, one of my things that never quite happened was uh, uh, Tim said one year, and uh, he was a very nice uh, social character, and we enjoyed his company a great deal. He said, oh, John, I'm thinking of bringing him out of the ME 109 next year, um, would you like to fly it? Yeah, he's going to lit up. So that was, uh, that would have been a dream. I got all the little notes and things that I could find anywhere and read it all up. But unfortunately, uh, as usual with the 109, somebody had an accident on the ground and screwed up one of the gear legs, and so it never happened. Anyway, back to the Venom. Uh, Bill Rolfe, who lived just down the road from me, he He's an aircraft engineer, he spent a lot of time on um, Five Squadron up in Nathala Bay. His father was uh, deeply involved with the aeroplanes uh, during the war, he was one of the chiefs of CAC in Australia. And in Palestine North, he had uh, quite a bit to do with the mosquitoes down there. So, Bill, uh, as a big storage member of Warbirds, was uh, a prime factor in getting the thing together at the uh, He did most of the uh, grunt work and he had some helpers up there, the Air Force needed some people, and I went out there when I could. Um, something I feel bad about still was I wrecked his thumb once because um, <coughs> he was working on the recocking mechanism for the canopy, and, uh, and uh, the timing got quite, not quite right, and I, when he asked me to, to, to go pull the handle to the canopy, and that he actually had his thumb in the way, so he crushed the end of his thumb, which reminds me that uh, the vampires and uh, our Air Force had venom canopies on them. The, and I managed to, um, to lose one of them for the Air Force uh, on the gunnery range at, Braumai, uh, at the bottom of a gunnery pass um, doing about 3.30 knots suddenly it was like riding the fastest motorbike in the west sort of thing <laughs> and uh, as I pulled up on this, uh, off this gunnery pass uh, my first thought was what have I done now? <laughs> Because I've made a lot of boobies in my time, and, uh, <laughs> and it was, uh, that, but that one was not mine. Not my mine. It, uh, when the aeroplane was uh, loaded, the uh, there was an ammo hatch on each side of the, just behind the canopy, 
and in there is a, a canopy, canopy re-cadison, canopy cadison re-cocking lever. When the canopy is replaced on the aeroplane, this is uh, repositioned and held by the pawl uh, uh, in there. And so when you pull the, uh, the lever in the cockpit, uh, it, it rotates this little pawl and it goes free and off goes the canopy. Anyway, um, also hanging in there, and you can see what happens is the it's also the uh, the uh, 100 or 200 rounds per, per gun of about 20 millimeter ammunition, and so and the canopy jettison recocking hand. It's got a D-ring on it about that size, and it uh, is held in a little clip, and it must have been dislodged during the arming process. Dropped down and managed to hook around the back end of one of the uh, 30 millimeter rounds. So as those rounds went down the chute, do, 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 off came the canopy. Um, so, uh, so that was that. And they uh, they didn't know what had happened originally, and uh, so uh, the guys out on the range put, picked up all the bits and put it together and photographed it and sent me a picture of it. About that time, I also had, a, I had an engine failure in the vampire on the runway, and uh, I was, uh, had a full load of full load of rockets and, and guns at the time, uh, and there's a, a big part of the uh, impeller, which is like a big uh, a centrifugal engine, a bit like a big washing machine impeller at the front of the engine there, had uh, exploded there under a sort of a little tension, they're subject to um, Electrolytic corrosion, which is why they're dewatered every night on the hangar. And um, this thing had ex exploded and um, smoke came out the front of the engine instead out the back. I thought this is not right, and it ran out of urge urgently. And so uh, we came to a halt, and a, a piece had gone through the uh, cable to the radio, so nobody would talk to me. But I wasn't waiting around to talk to anybody anyway. I was out of there and off. And then the, um, so some of as I say, some exploded, went forward, there chunks about that big, and the, uh, just lying in the intake there. Um, anyway, my good friend Larry Olson said to me afterwards, I thought you'd fired the rockets. So, Thanks very much, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, the, the venom got put together and uh, Trev flew it and then uh, I flew it. I, I did have a ride with him on the back of the uh, Mustang one day, which was marvellous. And uh, you know, one of the things that stood out for me was every time the blade comes past on that big prop, you can feel the wind off individual blade. Woof, 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 so they're coming by. So it was, uh, it was great. Um, so anyway, what... what um, Pretty much inside, like uh, like a vampire. All the controls are almost identical. And one of the interesting things about it is that um, to manage the stick force per G, which is a sort of design parameter, important one for different kinds of aeroplanes. Transport aeroplanes have a you have to pull a lot more stick and a lot heavier to get any sort of G force, which is right. I mean, you don't want to overload it, do you? And the way they managed that in uh, 
in the vampire venom is that under the fulcrum of the stick there's a big lead weight. It's shaped a bit like a mallet. It's 25 pound lead weight hanging under the bottom there. So the idea is that as you pull any, any G, the faster you're going, the more centrifugal force is on this thing and the harder it gets to pull it. So it's just a, a natural and instinctive. It feels just right when you're when you're working with it. Um, the interesting things about it, the, uh, the vampire had uh, problems with the shroud gaps, which is the gap between the, the, um, the tail plane and the, and the elevator, which are absolutely critical. And I, I did a lot of test flights on the, on the vampire, and one of them was uh, you do a dive dive test with a stick force uh, meter. And this uh, was um, fixed to the stick for the purposes of the test. And it was had a, uh, so you flew the, this part of the test just holding the handle on it and had a gauge on it that would read in, in pounds of force. And the idea was that you, you started off a dive from, I can't remember how high now, but you aim to do Certain, you're doing a certain speed every time you went through several thousand feet. And uh, the, uh, the problem, the uh, potential problem was that uh, you get a, uh, the airplane started to tuck under. And so you would, uh, if it started to do that, then you were, uh, then you measured, you watched and you took note and remembered the, uh, how many pounds on the stick force meter? And the highest I got to was, uh, I think, 60, which needed a bit of work. So you're flying in a steady dive, but you're doing 60 pounds pull to do that, which is, of course, is not desirable. It's all about this uh, shroud gap down the down the back and adjusting that. Um, yeah. So when we got to that, took it back and. Another test was just fine. Um, the, they resolved all that with the, with the venom. Venom was uh, never had uh, uh, any kind of problem with that at all. Uh, and also on the, van, on the vampire, they were doing um, with the, with the, what they call the bullets on the back end. Um, there's little uh, torpedo-like theories at the, at the front of the fins. Um, some of the airplanes again, those are repaired every 25 hours, so you know, it's very work intensive. Um, but flying the, the Venom uh, is quite a bit um, bigger airplane. As you see, we'll, we'll finish off with showing this little video of the Mustang and the Venom. If you look at the form, you see that the form of the, of the Venom is uh, it's got quite a big wing. Uh, and it's a lot heavier. I can't remember the vampire weights, but the Venom empty is about 9,000 pounds, fully loaded 15, so it's a you know, substantial kit. Uh, as for, for flying it, flies largely just like a, a vampire. Um, the Mark V vampire were very light on the control, and that would be my favourite. Some people prefer the two-seater, which is a bit heavier, and The, the stick forces and the venom are about halfway between the two, so just very, very nice. Um, 
the instrumentation in it was still uh, continental, having come from Switzerland. So the, the uh, speeds in kilometres and altitude in metres. So um, we just put a couple of marks on the on the ASI. I didn't want to be doing mental calculations all the time, so we just put a couple of handy marks for threshold and base turn and stuff like that. Um, and it was pretty quick, you could get it really motoring. Um, uh, fastest I ever I got it, I can't remember, it was right up to the, the max or a little over. It was um, uh, once in Hamilton, I went over Keith Skilling's head at, uh, and, um, and um, we were up around, I think it's 640 miles now or something like that, 535 knots or something like that, I can't remember, but it was right up against it. And once I did a, um, that part of the routine at, at uh, Wanaka was to um, to run down the, down the crowd line uh, with a lot of bank on and then pull up for a vertical roll departure. And which was fine and I was already, and I had, I thought, quite nicely um, set up to run down there and just, and that steps through Wallace and crowd and take a picture. She's stepped out well out from the from the crowd line and uh, it had me really worried that to lift a wing and I, I, I dropped me well over anyway but uh, uh, you know it's a brave and fearless and stupid thing to do but anyway <laughs> it worked out worked out all right now the, the venom would go straight up to about 15,000 feet um, for if you're doing sort of upward rolls and just as a comparison you know, the sky hook you get 21,000 uh, not more thrust there. Aeroplane not much different in size, uh, but very uh, much more efficient in, in, uh, in the sky or as far as fuel use, that sort of thing. Um, where do we go from there? Uh, so the yeah, the tail chase with the uh, with the Mustang was a lot of fun to do, and. Uh, Sometimes we got to do that over the harbour because we got quite involved with, with uh, Michael Fay and the and the uh, and his support of the America's Cup. So he sponsored some of the air shows over the harbour, which were um, uh, bloody marvellous from a pilot's point of view. Because all those things you're told never to do all your life, sort of thing, you suddenly allowed to do them, you know. And not only that, but over um, places you shouldn't be, sort of thing. So, okay. We'll do it. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, so uh, ultimately, of course, I, I put it through the, um, the turnip patch over here. And you probably want to know about that. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, so basically, it was a, a stream takeoff behind the, the Mustang. And uh, uh, I, I take the blame for uh, not watching the RPM as, as I should have. Uh, we certainly never got uh, full RPM, and, but we were accelerating all right. Those wheels were slow to come off, and I thought, well, um, if I can get it off and get a, a well, um, I'll sort it out in the year. Maybe the HP or LP cocks not fully forward or something like that or what anyway um, it became rapidly apparent I got 
that the airport is readily apparent that I wasn't going to clear the trees or the head of my belt, middle, which is just probably the worst place, so I stuck it back down on the ground. And uh, as Trev said in the TV uh, later on that evening, uh, you know, how skillfully I've taken it through this gate. <laughs> well, I think the gate was actually just the right place. <laughs> and uh, we hit the, hit the fence, and there's a, a video that turned up with this little car. It hit by a flying baton off the, off the fence. I had a bit of correspondence with them later on. Um, and then, uh, and then it uh, hit the dirt going into this turnip pit. Now it's a strange thing. Believe it or not, the pressure wave from this thing, which is uh, now firmly on the ground, and because we always fill it with full tanks, um, these little turnips in the ground in front of me were popping out of the ground. This is pressure wave right ahead. Incredible. I, <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's one of those things like you remember in slow motion sometimes, a car parade or something like that, and that's it, uh, it's a memory. And the other one, we, we eventually came to uh, to rest, and this is who came to rest uh, against a, a tree apart from anything else. This uh, little branch about this long popped through the woodwork by my left knee. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I climbed out and um, saw this beautiful anodizing through places that I shouldn't have been seeing it, you know, there's fuel peeing out of the wings and the big way and uh, I uh, departed the scene and went back to the road where Billy Beale was uh, soon there to pick me up and take me back to the hangar. She said, I think you need a nice cup of tea, John. And uh, I said, I had to agree with that. And I must say, uh, that uh, working with the Beatles was marvellous because uh, uh, there were Billy, Billy and, um, and Grant uh, uh, work as complete uh, support team from, from go to work. Grant had just loved being involved with it, uh, everything like driving the tractor and the whole bit. He did everything with absolute precision. His son, uh, Quilter, sorry that cracker. Um, uh, was right there, and Bill Rolf would do all the prep work. The engine required for the bearings to be pre-oiled before every flight, you know, because they're not flying regularly, so in order for them to, to have a decent life, they were pre-oiled, and so they climb under and uh, squirt some oil into them. Um, and so uh, the they would uh, get the venom going and depart and then follow up and then have a home. Later on, Billy always brought the picnic lunch. So it was, uh, you know, it was just good, good fun, great to go somewhere with them and everything worked. Uh, going to Wanaka uh, took me an hour 25 one way and an hour quarter the other way. I can't remember which is which now. But we, when we went down to the air show, we only had uh, uh, two, two cartridges spare, one for the air show down there and one to get back. So uh, that was one of the reasons why it was converted from the cartridge start. Cartridge start looks spectacular, but the cartridge is hard to get, expensive. And so the... Um, the uh, 
the cover which screws on and where the cartridge goes in was converted so it would have had on it a, um, a screw on type dog bottle uh, connection. So instead of the black smoke, it would be at the start signal um, that opened the valve on the dive bottle and uh, it would spool up. And of course, the gas took quite a lot further, a lot longer to, um, to go through than uh, the cartridge. But it uh, worked like a charm right from, right from the first go. So that was great. So we had then a permanent source for it. Um, surplus jet fuel that uh, that Grant had rescued from a rock between here and Auckland Island and uh, so he had a uh, just a rock down there where there's a fuel bladder that sat there for whenever anybody needed it if there was a rescue needed to be done down in that uh, area the fuel was available but of course um, and so uh, he brought that up and we thought, well, he suggested that just to make sure it was all right that I go for a blast. So I spent 50 minutes tooling around north and having a great time. And, uh, but out of that, uh, there must have been some water in the fuel uh, that precipitated afterwards. And uh, because of the investigation afterwards, uh, there was water in the burners. So everything started all right, started takeoff, all seems to be going good, but uh, uh, I don't know the mechanism of how it builds up in the burners or what, but that was a problem. And um, to be honest, I should have seen it a bit earlier, stopped earlier, but you know, you a good idea in your head, like I'll keep going wrong, too late now. <coughs> yeah. Anything else? So, um, just a couple of things in, from pop up and into memory. Um, one is that uh, not much right on the venom, very hard to do slow rolls. You see me scooping off to the left at the end of that slow roll there, just run out of rudder. They're quite small. And, and, the, and then that way, in the, the vampire also, uh, it wasn't all that flash for gunnery because it was a bit skittery on that direction. The other thing I wanted to mention was uh, in one of the air shows somewhere, I can't remember where it was, in the, the Venom behind the Mustang, um, Trev, Trev said something and I didn't pick it up. Default coot that I, even then I was. So um, apparently what he said was he'd wave me off and that was the end of that, but I hadn't picked that up so I stayed with him, which is when he tightened up the display. So we really got fun. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, I'm working. <laughs> anyway, um, 
the other thing was perhaps that uh, with this skinny wing, it was very sensitive when it was slow. So if you if you over rotated on the uh, a little on landing, it just fell out of the air. I was surprised by the first time. I so was uh, pretty careful from that on. But if you're trying to go up, pull back. If you're going to go down, pull back harder. <laughs> we just like that. Anyway, thanks for listening. Awesome. <laughs> That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.